Hey there! Welcome to Sauce Unbound, brought to you by Sauce Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Girish Redekar, founder of Sprinto, a compliance automation software for cloud-hosted companies that want to get into the big leagues. Sprinto is rapidly growing in 25 countries with over 150 employees, and um, they have raised over $10 million from the VCs. I know how difficult uh, raising funds can be, so that's already a great achievement, and it's great to see you here, Girish. Uh, I'm excited to be here, Anna. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Okay. Well, and uh, this is not your first business. You've had a recruiter box for eight years, if I'm not mistaken. About seven. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then it was acquired, but it was totally bootstrapped and it was a completely different business. So um, can we maybe dig into your background first before we go into Sprinto? I mean, like you said, uh, you could say stupid enough to do a startup twice. And uh, yeah, Recruiting Box was, uh, you could say it was an accidental startup in a way. What I mean by that is like, until I started up, I never thought I was going to do a startup before that. In fact, both I and my co-founders, we used to discuss a lot of ideas about the kind of things that we would probably want to do, but we never really uh, thought that we'd do a startup until we actually did. I remember at one point of time, it was basically trying to do a, we had a choice between doing MBA or doing a startup and then we said that let's do this. So that's roughly how it went. I would startup, be lying if doing I... Doing a startup was cheaper. <laughs> of course. Yes, definitely yeah. cheaper. You know, Recruiterbox uh, was also first startup, which meant that we were pretty nice. So it was more like jumping into a pool and then just playing around your limbs to, to see if you can stay afloat. Uh, that is roughly how it went. Uh, both I and my co-founders had to pinch ourselves programming because we had no money to hire programmers. So that was one of the first things that we had to do. We made a few darts, uh, and that's putting it generously. Uh, I think we took a while to find our feet. And before we actually came up with Recruiterbox, which is the first product, which immediately, it was at least some traction there. Along the way, since my co-founder and I, uh, we were first writing code. Then we were sort of moving on to other jobs since the company had to go into those things. So that went from programming to product management to marketing to sales to everything basically when the start company has to do at some point or the other before we could start hiring people in those aspects. Uh, I think it was a fairly exciting journey. I learned a lot. Uh, and being hands-on on a bunch of these functions meant that you actually got a sense of how to do these things. Uh, personally, then I need folks to do that. Uh, so very, uh, very fulfilling, very exciting journey. And yeah, in 2018, we exited that company, sold it to a private equity firm in the Bay Area. Uh, took a break for about a few months, about a year and a half, and uh, before we started working on Spritup. Okay, that is fascinating. And uh, I always want to ask that question for Bootstrap founders. So the first, or any, the first, the second, doesn't really matter. Uh, the startup where you have to take all those roles, like you said, at first you're a programmer and then you're a product manager and HR and marketer and whatnot. So after that, is it easier or is it more difficult to hire people because you know 
what you want done and how it can be done. So does it make it uh, a bit, I don't know, uneasy for you to hire a person who would take over from you after each role? Personally, I've not faced that problem. Uh, I, I don't think I generally get too attached to this particular thing being my baby and that it has to be in the exact same manner. Uh, I usually like to think in terms of the outcomes than the actual way the thing has been done. And so long as those things are making sense and the overall quality or whatever it is that you uh, expect as a measure of goodness of that thing is, is happening, uh, I, I'm usually uh, quite okay giving it away. Uh, so I, I personally didn't face that, that, that issue uh, Either you could have lost or a sprint up. Uh, but on, I don't think hiring becomes any easier or harder. It, it just is different. Like when you do uh, hiring, you typically grow those teams bottom up in the sense that I recruit a box. I remember that my first hires would be the kind of things, uh, it's mostly because I cannot afford the more expensive, more senior hires. Uh, so you, you're sort of building that pyramid from the ground up, right? Like so you're hiring people who can help you with, let's say, the busy work and, and then you're hiring people who can manage those people and then slowly you build that out. Uh, whereas we took a very opposite approach in Sprint of where we, so we hire uh, and we started working with uh, senior folks fairly early on uh, because they're optimizing for speed and not necessarily for efficiency. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So let's, uh, let's start talking about Sprinto. What is Sprinto? And what is the problem that it's solving? Yeah. So, uh, you know, funnily that the seeds of uh, what Splinter does were uh, sold back in Recruiterbox. So Recruiterbox is a task company. And one of the things uh, that happened as we were trying to take Recruiterbox up market is that larger customers care about how you treat their data. What do you do? What are the security practices that you have in place so that the data that they share with you is kept safe and secure? SaaS fundamentally means that my data is on your servers and I want some assurance that you're keeping that data safe and secure. Uh, this is becoming increasingly important. It used to be that extremely large customers used to care about this, uh, but now we are seeing that the flow at which you get asked for this is constantly dropping. Um, so back in the day when we were trying to do this in Recruiter Box, you were asked for uh, security compliances as a way of assuring that you have the right security practices in place. And these are things like SOC 2, ISO, GDPR, SIPA, uh, based on the industry that you're in, would be PCI, high trust, various other things. Uh, we, to put it very simply, we hated the process. Uh, like I, I loved all the bits that were helping us become more secure, but I hated all the uh, the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the uh, taking of the screenshots and the conversations uh, and the whole way this thing was done. It was extremely manual, uh, extremely laborious. I wouldn't say that I knew at the time that we exited RecruiterBox that this is the company that I want to build, but we looked at a, a few ideas, about half a dozen ideas, and this is one of the things that we had personal experience in, and we knew it was painful. So in a short word, uh, what Sprinter really does is it helps companies run a security and compliance program and uh, do it in a manner that's 10x faster than any other manual process that exists out there, uh, helps you get there faster, and in the process helps you close your larger deals and helps you demonstrate to your larger customers that you as a SaaS company are adopting the right security practices and helps you automate that process too. So you get there faster, you get there with less effort, uh, especially if you're the young company, uh, you know, you don't have dedicated bandwidth or security uh, expertise inside of the company. 
So we help you with all of those things and productize this whole thing so you get there a lot faster than you would otherwise. Okay, so basically it, um, it helps companies build trust towards bigger um, customers, right? And thus, like you said, get better deals faster and uh, more secure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, interesting. Uh, okay, so um, it's great that you mentioned younger companies because that was something that I was really curious about. Um, like you said, it's very obvious that bigger companies would want to um, to make sure that they're secure to win the larger share of market and that they're secure for larger customers. But um, how important is it for smaller SaaS companies say, I want to, to create my SaaS product. Should I think about compliance from day one? Or is there a point during the journey where like that's the point where I cannot survive without it? Um, I think it depends less on the, the age or the size of the company, but it mm -hmm. depends a lot more on the kind of customers that you work with and, and their size and the industry that they work with. So I'll give you an example. If you are somebody who deals with uh, patient health information, uh, on day zero as a SaaS company, you're going to have to have some security practices in place. There is a law called HIPAA in the US and, and most places, uh, which is going to ensure that you take care of this is extremely sensitive data that they're going to handle via challenge with patient health information. So you need to be prepared for this on day zero. It's a regulatory required. Or if you are as a company selling to, let's say, banks, uh, that's your target customer, uh, or financial institutions, they typically expect you to have PCI compliance, or you know, even though you may not be directly yet processing credit card information. Uh, so, so, so that becomes, again, like a day zero requirement for you. You as a company are enterprise first. You could be a small startup with just a couple of people, but you're selling enterprise first. They're going to ask you for soft to uh, on day zero, even for your first pilot. So I think the, the point at which you need these compliances depends a lot on who you're selling to and the industry and the, uh, the, the segment that you operate in more than the size of your company. Uh, you, you would need this. If you're a company who, let's say, is building a fairly um, general purpose tool, doesn't have a lot of sensitive data, and it's selling mostly to other SMB customers uh, who may not be... Uh, so rigorous in terms of their security requirements of their vendors. And you might be able to fly under the radar quite a while until you could become a reasonably large business. But as soon as you start hitting mid-market and enterprise customers, you will get asked for this again. So I would say it has less to do with the size of your own company, but it, it typically has to more to do with the size of your customers. Okay. All right. That's interesting. So, um... That said, I want to know how how you're dealing uh, with this because, uh, as far as I understood, when I when I visited the the website and when I tried to learn how you guys are operating, um, you go into um, into the demo with every customer. There is a um, customer success manager involved, and you kind of handhold the entire process, but you still have to, uh, and you're not doing audit right? You're not auditing any of those companies, but um, how are you checking if they're compliant with with any of the regulations that they have to be? Or uh, 
so basically, how do you ensure that you go into their systems securely? Well, so what Spirito as a platform fundamentally does is when we work with a customer, uh, a platform connects with the tools that the customers already uses uh, in order to run their business. We connect to your identity system or anywhere where your employee information lies. So this could be Google Workspace, let's say, or Office 365, or if you're doing an HRMS system, we'll connect to uh, the place where your application is hosted. So you're a SaaS company, you're hosting your application on AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or Heroku or whatever you So we'll connect to that. Uh, we'll connect to the places where you host a code repositories, let's say, GitHub or GitLab or whatever it is. And by, by connecting the systems, Spinto creates a picture of what your current security posture is, and it maps it against what the requirements of compliance is. So software has some requirements, and we are able to very quickly tell you that, okay, these are the places we are meeting the requirements, and these are the places where you have gaps. And for every single place there are gaps, Rocket is able to tell you that, okay, this is what you need to do to fix those gaps. Uh, and, and when you fix those gaps, Spinto is able to create a picture of, okay, this is, you, you're now 90%, 95%, 100%, SOC 2 compliant or ready for a SOC 2 audit. Behind the scenes, Sprinto also has partnerships with SOC 2 auditors who we have trained on the platform. So what that means is when you're ready, you basically just expose the data to your auditor. The auditors are able to see whatever they need to see and they see that you're meeting all the SOC 2 requirements and then they will issue a certificate to you. And that's how the process becomes extremely seamless. So that's roughly how the process works. On one side, Sprinto is talking to the systems that you already use as a company, monitoring them and telling you where the gaps are uh, and helping you fix those gaps. On the other side, you're collecting all of this data to, to, to show the auditors what they need to see so that they can certify you and, and give you the attestation that, you know, hey, you're meeting the requirements of this particular uh, certification or uh, attestation or what have you. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay. All right. That's a pretty complex um, <clears throat> strategy. So first. Uh, you go into with every customer and you show them how it works. And then you make sure that they understand the entire process. And then you evaluate uh, what they are doing already. And you also work with auditors that are uh, prepared to issue or, or not the certificates that, that they require. So a lot of parties are involved. So um, how do you make sure that your customers or your potential customers understand the need for it in the first place and the need for this process and automation because uh, this is not the first uh, tool that uh, talked about that 
is taking over the mundane tasks, the, you know, the paperwork, the Excel sheets and making it uh, and productizing it and making sure that it's automated, it's uh, a lot easier to operate. So how do you make them believe that this is the process that they need to implement and uh, there is nothing wrong with it and it's secure and all the parties involved are um, are going to take care of the information that uh, they receive. To be fair, it's always a little harder when, when you're just beginning up to build that kind of trust. I don't think we ever have to sell that you should become, uh, you, you know, that you should adopt SOC 2 ISO compliances. This is typically that they are being asked by their customers. So they, they are pretty brought in with the fact that they need to do SOC 2 ISO or GDPR or HIPAA, that that's something that they already know. It's about how they're going to do it. So they have two choices. Like there's either the manual way, uh, there's basically this productized way. And uh, what we have typically seen that as soon as they see the difference in the, the both the time and the cost estimates that they get when they're talking to, let's say, consultant and getting this done versus the way Sprinter describes the process, it is quite clear that this is going to cost me less. It's going to take take me less time and, and it's at least worth the shot. So that, I think that's one of the things that works in our field. The other thing that happens is that uh, especially among uh, younger SaaS companies, what we have realized is that there's a fairly good network. Uh, what that means is uh, the first thing that founders usually do when they're faced with this problem is they they ask other founders about, hey, what do you do about this? And uh, so Sprinto has a few hundreds of customers now. And, and what that usually means is that, you know, if someone comes across Sprinto, they, they, they're not quite sure, they're typically asking the network, they usually find someone who has used Sprinto. And you know, we're able to tell them from first-hand experience that it actually works. So, so that ex that actually helps. The first hundred customers are always had. You, you need to do everything you can to inspire that confidence with that. But beyond the point, it sort of starts helping you because you have referenceable customers, or if they are in doubt, you can put them in touch with uh, some of the customers you've already used you and to help them get the confidence that hey, this actually works. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the uh, the way that you got this first on the customers. So I don't think there was one thing that we did. Uh, I think it was a combination of a large number of small things. And uh, I think we were lucky to be in a space where there's a natural pull from the market in the sense that uh, there were, uh, it is a fact that there are more and more SaaS companies and more and more SaaS mm -hmm. companies are being asked for security compliance. So what that meant is that at any point of time, there were people looking for solutions related. So, so in the first, it was about uh, putting the word out that, hey, we help with this. If you know someone who, who needs this, ask them to talk with us. So, you know, at least you get some conversations going. So, and we focused on one segment, which was other SaaS companies to begin. So that was the very simple segment that we focused on. Anywhere where SaaS companies were hangout, uh, in communities where they tend to hang out, uh, you know, Slack groups, WhatsApp groups, uh, we used to uh, do partnerships with VC firms where we used to tell them that, hey, if your portfolio companies need something like this, then we've got to give a discount and, and we're happy to do even a session to how to go about security compliances, how to answer questions related to security from the customers. These are some of the activities that we did to get this word around. And like I said, there was like a large number of such small things. And um, for a long time, nothing happens. And then, you know, this thing starts um, picking up very yeah. soon. So that's roughly how that went about, how that happened. Okay. And did your uh, previous experience help with it? Maybe the network that you've already had? 
Yeah. So one of the things that we did better than the first time was that we, we interviewed a lot of uh, pension customers even before we started the company. Right. So, so to validate that this was a true, that this, this had legs outside of our heads, you know, like, so it wasn't something that we were imagining a problem. This actually did exist as a problem outside. That's something that we had done fairly early. So we had a reasonable degree of confidence that this was a real problem that other people wanted help on, which became really useful because, you know, when we had the product, we could go back and ask these people, like, hey, remember we talked about this? We, we, by the way, have a product now that helps you do this. You want to check it out. And more often than not, that was still a problem for them. And, and you know, they- All right. That makes sense. So uh, I want to talk a bit more about the, the process that you're doing it. Uh, so there is a discovery. There is a demo call and then there is customer success manager, right? So why did you choose to do it that way? Why is it not more self-serving and how are you managing? You said you have a few hundred customers now, right? And uh, 150 people in the company. I assume not everyone is a customer success manager. So how are you managing this flow of customers and why do you think uh, a demo call is necessary in your case? I think uh, I'm not entirely convinced that the, the process will continue to remain this way all through the while. Uh, you know, the company has been acquiring customers for only 24 months now. And part of the selfish reason that we still do a demo call and uh, you know, personalize onboarding is to shorten the feedback cycles because we want to learn more about the market. When people are in front of a screen, uh, they don't talk out their questions to the screen, but you know, when they're in front of a person, they ask, they talk about the things and they're apprehensive about their objections that they have, things that make them happy. And that allows us to learn faster. So, so there is a little bit of a, a selfish motive over there that, you know, really, it helps us learn and grow faster as a result. Uh, it allows us to learn more about the market, about our customer, the specific people that we are selling to. So that's one. I think the other important thing that we also realized is that for most companies, this is the first time that they are getting compliant or they are doing the compliance for the first time. And they have a ton of apprehensions about why is this really necessary? Why this way? Why not that way? And they have a lot of technical plus just apprehensive questions and questions about that. So we want to make sure that we're always there so that we can actually answer these questions on the fly. No matter what documentation you come up with, it's extremely hard to guess all the questions that people might have and give them ready answers for some of these things. So, uh, you know, while our eventual goal is to try and productize even this journey as much as possible, I wouldn't begin there. Uh, the goal is to use all the information that you get from doing this manually and then see what pieces of this can be can be enabled via product, via documentation or some, something else that you can add in. But now you, before you do that, you already know. You, you know what pieces of information do people need how would they like their onboarding journey to be like, and so on and so forth. And, and you're right. I think up until six months ago, I think we only had about three or four customer success people in, in that large team. So that's there. It's, it's not the most of the company that does customer success. All right. Okay. Um, so another question about customers, because you're talking with them so much and you're still keeping this flow to get as much feedback as possible, can you maybe remember um, the feedback that was really crucial for the development of the company or maybe the development of a specific feature that was influenced by a customer? 
It's a hard one. I, I don't think I can recall a specific example of that. So, and uh, that's primarily also because it rarely happens because of something a customer said. What we usually do is like all our interactions with our customers are recorded, like, like this conversation. And often, uh, you know, we look back at uh, some of those recordings, uh, you know, and uh, you can often find threads when you look at them together. Uh, the same person has gone through like a few customer journeys and, and then they see uh, like a common thread, which is a small Easy, fuzzy little thing to begin with, but then once you identify it, then it gets reinforced in your future conversations, and then you realize that it's a common pattern, right? So, uh, to give you an example, uh, one of the things that we uh, learned is that uh, you could uh, compliance is, is like nothing but a bunch of rules. Uh, for example, you could uh, have a rule that says that all your employees' laptops uh, need to be encrypted. Which means that if a laptop gets lost or stolen, then no sensitive data is lost. Or that's yeah. just one of the things that you need. Now, uh, this is great. Like this will make sense. But the fact is, companies in real life are more complex. Uh, sometimes you're working with contractors, where it's not a laptop that's company given, so it's the uh, contractor's mm -hmm. own laptop that they're using, and you don't necessarily have the power to tell them that hey, you should encrypt your laptop. Uh, and what do you do then? Uh, okay, there are cases where. Uh, you have full-time employees, you have part-time employees. Uh, in COVID, uh, the company was born in COVID. Uh, a lot of companies have bring your own device kind of policies. There are a lot of complexities that actually happen when you're dealing with this thing on the ground. So, you know, these are realities that you learn when you're actually dealing with customers. You're trying to say that, hey, this is what you need to do. But they say that, hey, but by the way, this is how I operate. And how do you find middle ground this? So you go and consult the auditors, you find out what do they expect to do here. And it really allowed us to build a product that handles all of these cases, whether you have a BYOD, like bring your own device, whether you're a contractor, whether you're a full-time employee, part-time employee, consultant, uh, company-owned laptop, employee-owned laptop, et cetera, et cetera. So now that that's kind of like a very native thing inside of Sprinter. We know how to handle each of these scenarios. It's baked into the product and we have instructions clearly on the product on how to do each of these things. Uh, so this is an example of, the sort of thing that happens and it doesn't happen in one conversation it just happens over a large number of small conversations you look put them together and then you realize like okay this is a pattern and this is how you deal with something like that okay all right that totally makes sense uh okay so uh also wanted to talk about your your personal experience and the fact that um the first company like we mentioned earlier was completely bootstrapped and for this one you went in a completely different direction. Uh, what was the reason for it? Uh, was it that difficult? Was it a, a too slow of a growth with the previous startup and you really needed uh, a hyper growth to win the market with this one? Or what was the main reason? I don't think the reason is that um, I'm ideological in either way. Like it, It's not like I believe that Bootstrap is the right way of building a company or venture capital is the right way of building the company. The truth is that even while we were doing box, we had ambitions of making into a large company. But at every stage of the company, there was no point at which capital was the actual uh, delimiter of the problem because of which we couldn't grow. So, you know, there was usually something else that we had to figure out to make it a large company. It wasn't capital, which was the, uh, which was the rate limiting factor. So, so it was a very different kind of a journey because of the space, the product, and the market that we operated in. Uh, with Sprinto, uh, we always had, again, like Box, the ambitions of making it a uh, big company. I guess you could say that we were a little smarter about picking the space that we are in, the product that we chose to be in, etc. 
and which made it made sense that, you know, we could already see that the business is growing a lot faster and which meant that uh, the business had the ability to absorb capital uh, and make it grow even faster. So it, it was a choice made out of what's really happening in the business rather than uh, an ideological choice saying that, yeah, I believe Bootstrap or I believe in venture funds. It's, it's not that. Okay, so uh, it's just the whole rivalry of Bootstrap versus funded startups right now, especially uh, on Twitter. You go in and it's whether one guy says, you know, we raised a million dollars and everyone's cheering them. Uh, and another guy says, oh, my God, I've been bootstrapping this company and I've been so successful, but I haven't been getting enough PR uh, and enough attention about it. And I feel that it's unfair. Uh, so, OK, so it's not about um, your mindset. It's just about the product that you're dealing with. Oh, I mean, to each their own, like I don't uh, specifically have an advice for other founders about whether they should bootstrap or uh, you know, I, I think you, it's a personal decision in some ways for, for many people. Um, it has implications on the rate at which your company ought to be growing at, uh, expectations in, in terms of how fast you want to grow that company. And if the founders and your investors are not aligned around those expectations, it can often cause a lot of tension. So I think, uh, you know, as so long as you're doing this for the right reasons, there is there is no problem. And, and either way is a great. I have done both. Uh, I, I love both ways of doing it. Okay. All right. And, you know, you've been quite successful in both. So uh, it all works. Um, okay. So another thing uh, about uh, being a funded startup that I wanted to talk about is um, the uh, at the very beginning when I asked you, uh, how many employees do you have? And uh, the information that I had, and uh, that was from the podcast that uh, I watched uh, one of your episodes. And I think it was just like half a year ago and it said 80 employees. And then you told me, no, it's actually 150. And I was like, wow, like that's a very rapid growth. So yeah. um, one thing that, uh, you know, we're also a very rapidly growing company. And one of the challenges with this is integration of, well, for us, all the companies, but also all the teams, all the people inside, right? And making sure that we're all aligned with the culture and the goals that we want to achieve. So in, in your case, um, after you've grown over these two years so much, uh, were you able to establish some kind of culture from the very beginning or did it evolve or did it uh, even started growing at a later point when you know, you realize it's not just going to be a, a cool startup with just 10 people that where the communication kind of just happens. So how did you approach that? Yeah, again, uh, having done this a second time, there are some things that, you know, sort of become muscle memory for you as a founder. The dangers of not doing certain things consciously and just waiting for them to evolve. Culture is one of those things. I would say that there were two things that were happening. First of all, uh, we are not only a fast-growing company, uh, we are a completely remote company. And, and that has certain implications when you're growing that fast uh, as a remote company. It's harder to, you know, invite culture because people are Absolutely. not physically in one place. Uh, and we were quite aware of, uh, you know, what what we are getting into a lot before those things started happening. So uh, just to give you a sense, we were 
about Spice people 24 months ago. And we had 150 people 24 months later. So there was a fair bit of rapid growth that happened. And uh, right when we were about, I remember we were just barely 15, 20 or 25 people. We, we sat down and we, we thought very carefully about uh, how we're going to operate as a company. And not just in terms of the culture and the values that we want to hold and make sure that everybody follows, but just in terms of the way we operate as well. So we incorporated OKRs, for example. So usually you don't see companies implementing OKRs about that younger state. But we realized that we being remote, uh, it's important for us to be able to communicate outside of communicating verbally in terms of what the company is trying to do. Now, whatever I'm doing is going to you know, add up to the whole. And this is going to happen. We could see that the company is going to grow rapidly from here on. And if we don't start doing this now, uh, it just becomes harder and harder at a late point of time. So we did a bunch of things when we were fairly small. Uh, and you could say that... Uh, they were perhaps too early to do those things. Uh, uh, typically, companies don't do this, uh, those kind of things. Having a clear picture of OKRs or, or having a clear picture of you know what your values are as a company and and uh, how you're going to instill those values and how you're going to make sure that they're followed in the processes and everything else that you do as a company. But we started doing those things fairly early, and then uh, you know as we grew the company, we made sure that those processes become stronger uh, and, and those things are being running. We didn't get everything right, but we, we were trying something. So when it was wrong, we went and fixed it and so on and so forth. But the, but the key was to start early because uh, at that pace of growth, you, you rarely get chances to, to sort of fix things when they're already broken. So, you, know, so, so you, you have to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, and that's what we tried to do so far. I, I, again, I wouldn't pretend that we've done everything right there. Uh, we've made our share of mistakes. It's just that we are always trying to, uh, at the scale at which we are today, we always we already trying to solve problems that we might face when we are a 500 people company. So that's the that, that's one of the things that we are imbibing as culture inside of the company. Okay, we'll talk about the mistakes in a bit. But <laughs> uh, first, I wanted to ask if you could share a hack that's been working for you. Uh, in building the company, growing the company, whether it is uh, something about compliance, something that you personally love and uh, implemented early for Sprinto, or anything else uh, operation-wise. I don't know if I'd call it a hack or... Yeah. Nothing directly comes to my mind right now, but uh, one okay. of the things that, uh, that I think helps us uh, we've seen and, and grow uh, certain things which can usually get harder is that I've typically seen companies organize themselves by roles. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, it's very easy to say that it, there's an engineering team or there's a customer success team, there's a support team, there's your marketing team, there's your sales team, craft team, there's a design team. Uh, and so on and so forth. So, and what you have when you organize a company this way is you have homogeneous goals inside each of these pockets that I just described. And uh, one of the things I realized is that whenever you organize a company in that manner, uh, what often happens is there are hands off. So, when you want to do something as a company, engineering does something and it hands off the stuff to design. Product does something, hands off stuff to design, and then does something more and then hands off stuff to engineering and, and this whole thing starts looking like an assembly car, uh, assembly line yeah. car. So you do these things. And uh, 
that's those hands off means that every subsequent team uh, expects an exact uh, fidelity of an output from the previous team. And, and there's as a fast moving startup, that doesn't always work. You, you, you start creating more and more wastage in the company uh, as you start doing those things. What I've generally seen work better is to organize teams around goals rather than growths. So what that means is that, hey, uh, there is a feature that you're building uh, and you know, in order to build this feature, that's your goal as a company. That's a business goal. You're building this feature or you're building this small product here. Uh, and that's going to need a, a, a product manager, a designer, maybe a couple of engineers and a marketing team to basically talk about it and launch it and everything else. So you build a team around that. So you, that team is self-sufficient in terms of everybody that it needs to get to the business goal. Uh, and you align the team to that goal. So now it's not about uh, there being a product team who's going to spend some 10% of their time building on things and then hand it over to someone else, etc. The team is actually built around the goal that you want to get to rather than the role that you perform in the team. And that generally helps a lot. Uh, that really helps you ship this thing a lot better, faster, with better quality. And it just helps team learn and recognize the problems that other rules face when, when you do something in a certain way and when you go, go a little bit beyond, creates more empathy for what other people do. And it just helps people work together a lot better rather than when you're just working in inside homogeneous roles inside of a company. So that's one of the hacks that I've learned that tends to work better, especially when you want to do something that's ambitious, fast, high quality that you want to do. You should organize people by goals and not roles. And that just always, almost always works better. All right. I can totally see it working because uh, I think what we do, maybe subconsciously or maybe it's a, it's a very well uh, organized um, strategy inside uh, inside SaaS group that we don't even notice that. But uh, it's exactly the same. So you have a project and you just add people to it and they work together and they only leave like when it's done. It's not like... Yeah. I do my part and then I give it to you expecting that, you know, if I messed up something, you can probably pick it up or then send it back my way. So, yep. yeah, I think it's uh, it definitely eliminates uh, time wastage for sure. Okay, uh, so just a couple more questions. And um, the next one is the, the usual one. What is so far the biggest win and the biggest failure? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. <laughs> I don't know if you'd call this a win, uh, but uh, one of the things I'm really thankful about uh, in, in terms of uh, doing a startup is that I, I never programmed really in my life before. So been, you, you learn some programming in college, but I never professionally programmed. And uh, uh, I think in some way, uh, the fact that I learned to program because I did a startup has been incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, fulfilling for me. Uh, I learned that there is a side of your life uh, that, you know, that I didn't know about before that existed, that I really enjoyed. And I really feel empowered when I'm actually, uh, you know, uh, coding. So uh, to me, that's one of the largest wins that I personally have had in life. Like the, the fact that I can program now and I enjoy it. And I, uh, you know, even though I may not be the best programmer around, the fact that I know how to do it is, is something that I uh, am personally very, very happy about. Uh, uh, I, I remember the first time I could actually make something run on a remote server was like a mind equal to blown moment for me. Uh, is 
yeah, that, that was pretty amazing for me as a person. So, so you know, personally for me, that was that was a huge win, uh, and uh, I, I don't think I'll ever uh, get tired of that feeling of being able to build something yourself, uh, which is what uh, I feel is the biggest joy that I get is to be make something out of nothing. Uh, so, so I, I really love that. And that I think is the biggest win. Okay, I remember. Can't, I- Sorry, I, I I listened to to one of your podcasts where you said um, programming is something that I definitely enjoy and I don't get to do as much uh, now at my work. So would it if you had a chance to uh, to trade positions uh, at the company, would programming be the outlet where you would go? Uh, not in terms of trading positions, but that's that's the thing that I'm. I feel I'm most comfortable at. I really love what I do right now, and I think it's important. Uh, and I'm really invested in the company, and I love helping growing it. But I would say that's like my that's my comfort spot. If you leave me to myself, and and there is, I, I'm trying to de-stress. I'd rather program than than, than do something else. So that's right. how it is now. Interesting. All right. What about the failure? Was there any failure, um, maybe in business, uh, with Sprinto? Uh, I don't know, a huge customer that didn't uh, go your way. So, what was the challenge uh, and maybe a bit of a disappointment that you can rem- remember? Oh wow, those are so many. No, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> And I, I think most founders were just to this. You learn to be on the point, rub them off, and then move along. Uh, so I, I'm pretty sure there are disappointments of that sort where you know there, there was a deal we lost. I couldn't convert a customer uh, that I felt pretty bad about for maybe a day. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's always something. So one of the good things about in a star, uh, about a startup is that there's always something else to worry about, and and there's always something sure. else to look forward to. It doesn't really allow you to wallow in your disappointments, uh, which is uh, something that I like. Uh, so that way, I, I I can't think of something that was truly uh, uh, disappointing over a period of time. So uh, uh, touch wood. But yeah, that, that's how it has been so far. That's perfect. I mean, I, I really hope that it stays that way for as long as possible. Well, uh, thank you, Girish. It's been uh, amazing learning about this journey with Sprinto and about your personal journey as a founder. I really hope that uh, you guys go a long way. And uh, maybe next year we do another podcast when there are like 500 of you. So <laughs> all the best with Sprinto. and. Uh, Tell us how um, it's possible to find you or maybe get a taste of the product. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, anyone who wants to know more about Sprinto, we are at www.sprinto.com. Uh, my email is girish at sprinto.com. If there's anything I can help you answer about startups, bootstrapping, fundraising, about compliances, anything that you think you want my help on, just feel free to drop me a line. I'm, I'm always, most of the times, I'll, I'll always try and reply. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And again, thanks for being here. And take care. For having me, Kano. I really enjoyed being here. Great. Thank you. Thank you. 
that was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.